Hey guys, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief. Today I'm doing The Crucible by Arthur Miller. It's about the Salem witch trials. If you didn't know, it's actually technically a play. So I'm going to go over a little context and a little bit about Arthur Miller, and then we'll get into the book. So The Crucible is written in 1953 by Arthur Miller. It is written as a play. It's a partially fictionalized story of the Salem witch trials. Some of it is real. Some of it is not. Actually, most of it is real. There's just a few things that are fabricated, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's set in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692 to 1693. Arthur Miller wrote this book, or play, I guess, as an allegory for McCarthyism. So McCarthyism is the practice of making accusations for subversion or treason without proper regard for evidence. So at the time he wrote The Crucible, the United States was in the middle of what they called the Second Red Scare, or McCarthyism, and it basically was a widespread fear of communism and like the fear that foreign communists would infiltrate the United States and also that communists were spying on them. It was just like a huge fear of communism, basically. And they referred to it as McCarthyism because Senator Joseph McCarthy was one of its most famous supporters. So again, Miller wrote this play as an allegory about McCarthyism because like the Salem Witch Trials, they were accusing people of being communists with no proof or reason to believe that they were communists, just like they did with the Salem Witch Trials. Anyway, so written as a play, first performed on Broadway in 1953. It won the Tony Award that year for the best play. And Arthur Miller, a little bit about him, he's a Jewish man born in 1915 in Harlem, New York City. He lived until 2005. He was obviously a very controversial writer and was actually blacklisted. His other popular plays that he wrote are All My Sons in 1947 and Death of a Salesman in 1949, which you've probably heard of. It's considered one of America's finest plays. Fun fact, I had no idea until I googled Arthur Miller, but he was married to Marilyn Monroe. They were married in 1956. They loved each other. Marilyn was pretty obsessed with him. She even converted to Judaism for him, and as a result, Egypt banned all of her films. And in 1961, the two divorced, so they were married for five years. Before they were divorced, Miller wrote the movie The Misfits, which Marilyn stars in, and that's when things kind of got bad between them, and they divorced. And then Marilyn started doing a lot of drugs, sleeping pills, and a year and a half after their divorce is when she died of a drug overdose. So pretty interesting. Anyway, very off topic. Okay, now I'm going to go through major characters. I'm only going to talk about a few. There's a ton of characters in this. I'll do my best to like make sure you guys know who's speaking at what point, but there are a lot of characters and I'm only going to talk about a few. The first person I'm going to talk about is Reverend Samuel Paris. He is one of the villains in the play. He's not a very good man. He is a reverend, but he's in constant fear that people hate him. He believes that he's being persecuted everywhere he goes and that people don't like him, which is sort of true. A lot of people don't like him. It's all about him and what can benefit him. And he's not the type of guy you would think would be a reverend. Okay, the next character is John Proctor. He, I would probably consider him the main character of the play. He is the play's tragic hero is what they call him. He's a very good man. He's upstanding. He's honest. 
but he does have one weakness, and that is his affection for Abigail Williams. John Proctor is a married man, and he has an affair with his servant girl, Abigail Williams. She is young and pretty and whatever. His wife, her name is Elizabeth, and she finds out about the affair, obviously hates Abigail, fires her, and she's no longer their servant. Anyway, I'll talk about Abigail in a second, but she is the initiator of most of the hysteria that goes on in Salem. She's the first person to accuse someone of witchcraft, and she spins like a whole web of lies, and John Proctor knows that he's the only person who can discredit her by confessing to his affair with her, but he's obviously afraid to do that. And by the time he does confess, it's too late. So Abigail Williams, she's a young girl who had an affair with John Proctor. In the book, she's 18. I think in real life, she was 14, just FYI. Uh, but in the play, they made her older. She is a villain in the play. She, like I said, was a servant in the Proctor household until she had an affair with John Proctor. She was fired after that. And she is the one of the reasons, the main reason, I guess, that 19 innocent people are killed for witchcraft. She's unmarried, she's an orphan, and she's socially barely above slaves. And so she, this is one of the reasons that she causes the mass hysteria because she sees an opportunity to be a person that the town listens to and trusts. And so she starts telling stories about all the people who are trying to hurt her through witchcraft and people believe her and so she takes advantage of that. The next character is Elizabeth Proctor. She's John Proctor's wife. During the time of Proctor's affair with Abigail, Elizabeth was ill. She had just given birth and she obviously hates Abigail. She stops attending church because she doesn't want to be anywhere near Abigail. And during the play, she and John are trying to repair their marriage. She's a pretty insecure person, uh, but she is a really good woman. Okay, the last person I'm going to talk about is Reverend John Hale. He is, I would consider him the most dynamic character in the play. He, in the beginning, is the witch hunter that they call into Salem to find out what's happening when a bunch of girls start getting they're like unconscious in their beds and acting weird. And so they obviously assume witchcraft and they call John Hale because he's a supposed expert on witchcraft. In the beginning of the play, he encourages the hysteria and, you know, plays along with all the accusations and believes it all. But through the story, he transforms. And as he listens to John Proctor, and another character, Mary Warren, he believes that they're telling the truth and that everyone else is just lying and accusing innocent people. He tries to stop the witch trials, basically. He tries to stop them from getting executed, but he fails. It's too late. Okay, so the themes to look for, we're not going to talk about them until the end of the podcast, but the themes to look for are intolerance, hysteria, and judgment. Okay, so the chapters, they're not chapters. They are acts. Like I said, it's a play. There's four acts. But before we get into that, there is a note. It's called a note on the historical accuracy of this play. And it's just two paragraphs about the historical accuracy of the play, I guess. So I'm going to read the first one because this is what I want you guys to know that most of this is true. There are minor adjustments. So this play is not history in the sense in which the word is used by the academic historian. Dramatic purposes have sometimes required many characters to be fused into one. 
The number of girls involved in the crying out have been reduced. Abigail's age has been raised. While there are several judges of almost equal authority, I have symbolized them all in Hawthorne and Danforth. However, I believe that the reader will discover here the essential nature of one of the strangest and most awful chapters in human history. The fate of each character is exactly that of his historical model, and there is no one in the drama who did not play a similar, and in some cases, exactly the same role in history. So the only changes he made were he fused a bunch of judges into just two because there were a lot of judges and changed minor things like Abigail's age. So the facts are between February 1962 and May 1963, more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft in Salem. 30 were found guilty. 19 were executed by hanging 14 women and five men. Another man was killed. I guess I'll just tell you now because it's so horrific. He was pressed to death. Basically, they just put more and more rocks on his chest until he died. And then at least five more people died in jail before their execution. And also this hysteria spread beyond Salem. So these are just the ones that happened in Salem. Act 1, An Overture. So we are set in Salem, Massachusetts, 1692. The government is a theocracy. So that means that the government runs through religion with God and religious leaders as the leaders of the community. So instead of what we have now, which is separation of church and state, it was combined. This is Puritan, Massachusetts. If you listened to the Scarlet Letter podcast that I did, it is the same society just the Scarlet Letter was 40 years before the Salem Witch Trials. So Puritan, Massachusetts, Puritan doctrine believes that all people are born sinners because of the fall of Adam and Eve, which was the original sin. Another Puritan belief is that sin and transgressions should be sought out and exposed and people should be publicly punished for their transgressions. So these Puritan people were likely to believe lots of things. When they were afraid of something, they believed in demons, devils, evil spirits, elves, witches, etc. They believed that they were actively living among them and could cause them harm. So this is how an entire community believed that there were witches among them and killed them out of mass hysteria and fear. On page four, it says, This predilection for minding other people's business was time-honored among the people of Salem And it undoubtedly created many of the suspicions which were to feed the coming madness. The witch trials were a perfect opportunity for people who hated their neighbors to accuse them of witchcraft and get them thrown in jail, which is what a lot of people did. Men felt the relief of confessing their affairs, (laughs) but they blamed it on witchcraft. So they would be like, I was laying in bed and the spirit of this girl came into my bedroom and basically had sex with me. But it wasn't my fault because it was a spirit and it was her witchcraft that did it. So it was like a way for them to confess without really confessing, without taking any of the blame. And people were quick to accuse those they had feuds with over like land or boundaries or animals, whatever. So the main plot of the story is this. A group of young girls were found dancing in the woods with a slave woman named Tituba. The town believes that witchcraft was involved because... There was a fire and Titabo was speaking unintelligibly and also because now one of the girls, well, two of the girls, I guess, Betty Paris and Ruth Putnam are basically unconscious in bed. They're having like health issues. Samuel Paris is the father of Betty Paris, one of the sick girls, and he is the reverend in the town. 
He's a very difficult man to deal with. On page three, it says he cut a villainous path and there was very little good to be said for him. He believes he was being persecuted wherever he went. So you can imagine his dismay when his 10-year-old daughter, Betty, after being found in the forest dancing with a group of girls, is lying unconscious in her bed. Reverend Paris calls on Reverend John Hale, the witch hunter or witch expert, to see if witchcraft was involved. Another girl that was caught dancing through the woods was Abigail Williams, and she is the niece of Reverend Paris. Abigail is older. Um, She denies any witchcraft, says that Betty just fainted from shock because her father found them in the woods and they're not supposed to be dancing in the woods. Paris isn't sure if he can trust her because he knows that something happened between her and the Proctors because he's recognized that Elizabeth Proctor has stopped coming to church. And that happened soon after Abigail was fired for being their servant. He also knows that no other family has hired Abigail. And so he asks her, why has no one else hired you? What did you do? And she's obviously angry at the insinuation that she did something wrong. The scene is set in Betty's bedroom with Betty unconscious on the bed and Paris and Abigail talking. Another family enters the room. It's Thomas Putnam and his wife. And they're talking about their daughter, Ruth, saying that she's in the same situation as Betty. And then the narrator gives a little background on Thomas Putnam. He says he's a man of many grievances. He's deeply embittered. He holds grudges towards a lot of people in the community. And it says on 14, So it's not surprising to find that so many accusations against people are in the handwriting of Thomas Putnam or that his name is so often found as a witness corroborating the supernatural testimony or that his daughter led the crying out at the most opportune junctures of the trials. So basically the narrator's like, this man sucks. He's the reason that most of these people were accused and killed. Okay, so they call they call women in the town goody, and it's what it's just what they referred to married Puritan women as. So they would say goody Proctor, goody Putnam. It's like a shorthand of good wife. We gotta explain this better. Paris has a daughter, Betty, who is unconscious. His niece is Abigail who worked for the Proctors and now has been fired. And his slave woman is Tituba. Tituba is believed to be a witch, I guess, by some people. So the Putnams are at their house. They say that people are saying they saw Betty flying in the air last night. And then Mrs. Putnam confesses that she sent her daughter Ruth to Tituba to find out why all of her children have died at birth, except for her daughter Ruth. And she believes that a witch murdered her children and she wanted Tituba to find out who the witch was. Learning this, Reverend Paris is obviously furious. He turns to Abigail and he now believes that they must have certainly been practicing witchcraft in the woods that night. But he decides to wait for a second opinion from Reverend Hale before spreading witch all over town. Mercy Lewis comes in. She's the Putnam's servant girl. And she tells them that Ruth seems to be improving. The Putnam's are talking to Paris. They try to encourage him to go downstairs to speak to the people who are gathered there. He's like, okay, fine, I'll go down. We'll sing a song, but nobody say anything about witchcraft yet. So the adults leave and it just leaves Abigail and Mercy in the room with unconscious Betty. Mercy is also a girl who was in the forest with them. She asks Abigail what Reverend Paris knows and Abigail says, I told him that we were dancing and that Ruth tried to conjure her dead sisters and that's all I told him. 
And then she says, oh, by the, by the way, he thinks he saw someone running naked through the woods. That was Mercy. But Abigail denied anyone being naked. Anyway, Mary Warren enters. She is the proctor's new servant. So she comes in and she begs Abigail to tell the truth about what they were doing so that they don't get blamed for witchcraft because whatever they were doing was obviously <laughs> was not witchcraft, but they are freaking out. Betty wakes up in a frenzy and Abigail takes charge of the room. She tells the girls that she told Paris everything and Betty, who apparently could hear what was going on when she was lying in bed, supposedly unconscious, says, no, you didn't. You didn't tell Paris that you, <laughs> that you drank blood as a charm to kill Elizabeth Proctor. So apparently Tituba made a pot of chicken's blood for Abigail to drink in order to kill Elizabeth Proctor because she's trying to be John Proctor's wife. Abigail slaps Betty when she says this. She says that they can only confess to dancing in the woods and trying to conjure up Ruth's dead sisters and she threatens to kill them if they tell anyone the other things they did in the woods. So Betty goes back to being unresponsive. Mary freaks out yelling at Abigail that Betty's gonna die. She says it's a sin to conjure and we and it's cut off. So they were actually conjuring Ruth or trying to conjure someone, but they're cut off when John Proctor enters the room. The narrator describes John Proctor. It says he is a young man in his mid thirties. He's handsome and strong and a good, decent man. He's respected in the community, but he feels like a fraud because he's a sinner. Like I said, he had an affair with Abigail when she was a servant in his house. John Proctor walks in the room. He gets mad at Mary Warren because she's his servant and she's supposed to stay at his house and help his wife. And Mary and Mercy both leave. So it's just Proctor and Betty and Abigail in the room. And he asks Abigail how Betty's doing. And Abigail basically propositions him. She asks why he hasn't come to her house at night in a while, why he's not coming to her anymore. He gets angry with her, but she reminds him that he loved her once and that he still loves her but Proctor tells her that it's over and he'll never come to her ever again so below them they hear people start singing a hymn as soon as the song starts Betty starts she like wakes up screaming and crying Paris hears from below and comes running upstairs and with him come the Putnams who we've met already and Rebecca Nurse who is a 72 year old woman she's very highly regarded in the community and a man named Giles Corey, who is 83. He's old, but he's inquisitive and very powerful. So they asked what happened, and Abigail says that Betty must have heard them singing and woke up. Mrs. Putnam takes this to mean that Betty must have heard the Lord's name and freaked out because she cannot bear to hear the Lord's name, which obviously means witchcraft. So Paris sends Mercy to get the doctor, and then he asks Rebecca Nurse to help Betty. Rebecca Nurse, like I said, she's very highly regarded. She walks to Betty and it says on 24, gentleness exudes from her. Rebecca simply stands over the child who gradually quiets. So the narrator takes this time to describe Rebecca Nurse. She's the wife of Francis Nurse, a very respected man in the community. People look to him as a sort of judge and he handled disputes for everyone in town the nurses owned a lot of land, 300 acres, and all their children lived on the land with them. She has 11 children and 26 grandchildren. 
Francis Nurse rose to his status from basically nothing, and some people resented him for this. And he was in a never-ending land war with the Putnams. It says on 24, As for Rebecca herself, the general opinion of her character was so high that to explain how anyone dared cry her out for a witch and more how adults could bring themselves to lay hands on her, we must look to the fields and boundaries of that time. So the narrator goes on to explain that the nurses were part of the reason why the Putnam's relative didn't get the minister position that he wanted. And so that, along with the land dispute, caused the Putnam's to hate the nurses. And like we said, the Putnam's had a lot to do with those who were accused. In the Salem Witch Trials, it was two Putnam's who signed the first complaint against Rebecca And it was Thomas Putnam's daughter, Ruth, who on 25, it says, fell into a fit at the hearing and pointed to Rebecca as her attacker. Back to the scene in the bedroom. Mrs. Putnam is horrified. She asks Rebecca what she did to calm her. And Rebecca's like, calm down. I have 11 kids. I have 26 grandkids. I've seen them through all their, she calls them silly seasons. And she basically tells them that the girls are fine. They're just going through a time. And she encourages them to not bring Reverend Hale into this because he'll just bring the devil out. So there's a lot of random side arguments here that I'm not really going to get into. But Proctor and Putnam also hate each other. And Putnam points out that John Proctor hasn't been to church in a while. And Proctor tells Paris, he's like, I stopped coming because... He feels that Paris hardly ever mentions God anymore in his sermons. He says a lot of other people in town believe that as well. Paris is obviously not happy when he hears this. He tries to defend himself, and then they get into some weird argument about firewood. Anyway, while they're having this argument, Reverend Hale arrives. The narrator describes Reverend Hale. He says he's almost 40. And on 31, it says, this is a beloved errand for him. On being called here to ascertain witchcraft, he felt the price of the specialist whose unique knowledge has at last been publicly called for. So he's been studying this for a while and he feels really validated that someone's actually calling to use his services. The narrator talks about how someone as intelligent as Hale could believe in witchcraft, but he reminds us that better minds than Hale's have also believed. And at the time... It's Puritan, Massachusetts. So basically everyone believes in witchcraft. So the narrator tells us that he believes the people in Salem were in fact communing with the devil and spirits. He talks about the witchcraft going on in towns and areas surrounding them. Okay, anyway, back to the bedroom. Hale comes in, meets everybody. He recognizes Rebecca Nurse by reputation. The Putnams tell Hale that their daughter is also sick and she seems to have lost her soul. Proctor leaves because he doesn't really believe in any of this. He tells Reverend Hale that he hopes he'll be sensible. So Reverend Hale goes to inspect Betty, and everyone starts telling him their different theories. And he stops them and says on 35, we cannot look to superstition in this. The devil is precise. The mark of his presence are definite as stone. Hale asks what happened first. Paris points to Abigail and she tells him that they were dancing in the forest, just regular dancing. And then Mrs. Putnam tells him about Tituba and how she had her conjure her seven dead daughters. Rebecca leaves after this because she's like, I'm not dealing with this. And Giles Corey interrupts next, telling Hell that his wife is reading strange books and won't tell him what they are. 
And once when she was reading, he couldn't recite a prayer in his home until she left the home. The narrator interrupts here to talk about Giles Corey. It says on 38, his fate was to be so remarkable and so different from that of all the others. He was a crank and a nuisance, but he was a deeply innocent and brave man. In the town, he was often blamed for random things like cows missing or a fire in the woods, but he was ultimately a very good man. So back to the bedroom. (laughs) If you haven't noticed, the narrator interrupts the dialogue a lot to talk about characters. So now we're back to the bedroom again. Hale focuses again on Betty. Reverend Paris asks why the devil would pick a minister's house and a minister's daughter when there are actual sinners in the town. And Hale says on 39, what victory would the devil have to win a soul already bad? So he tries to wake up Betty, but she won't wake up. And he turns to Abigail to ask what happened. She isn't honest at first, but after some prying, she admits that they were dancing, that there was a pot filled with chicken blood and a frog jumped in it. And that's what they were dancing around. And then she says that Tituba called the devil, but not the other girls. So they obviously called Tituba up to the bedroom. She tells them that Tituba made her drink chicken blood. And Tituba is like, I don't mess with the devil. And Hill asks what she did to Betty. And she says she didn't do anything. Abigail accuses Tituba of making her drink blood every night. And Tituba says that Abigail, she's like, you ask me to conjure and make charms. And Abigail calls her a liar. So obviously Abigail is just blaming everything on Tituba because it's easy. And Paris tells her to confess to conferring with the devil or he'll kill her. He's talking to Tituba. And she's hysterical. She says she told the devil she doesn't want to work for him. Hale talks calmly to her, says he'll help free her from the devil. And Tituba says she thinks there's someone in town witching these children, but she doesn't know who. And Hale calmly speaks to her about God, asks if she loves him, and asks her who she saw with the devil. Tituba says she saw a woman with the devil and Putnam, in the background, offers, he says, was it Sarah Good or was it Goody Osborne? And Hale is like, don't be afraid. I'll protect you, Tituba. But he needs to know who was with the devil. She says she saw four people with the devil and that the devil told her to kill Reverend Paris multiple times, but she didn't, obviously. She finally says the women she, the women she saw with the devil were Goody Good, Sarah Good, and Goody Osborne, which were the two names Putnam literally offered a moment before that. So she's probably just like, oh, I'll use those names because they're easy people to believe who would be involved in witchcraft. And then Abigail speaks up saying she knows who they were too. It was Goody Good, Goody Osborne, Bridget Bishop. And at the moment, Betty wakes up suddenly. She says she saw George Jacobs and Goody Howe with the devil. And then Abigail and Betty go back and forth spouting off names until the act ends. And that's the end of Act 1. Act 2. Act 2 opens with John Proctor eating dinner with his wife, Elizabeth. There is a definite awkwardness happening between the two of them. You can tell that there's distrust in this relationship and that Elizabeth is very insecure. Their servant, Mary Warren, has gone to the witch trials even though she was ordered not to. And Proctor is mad that Elizabeth let her go. She says that Mary is now an official of the court and that she and the other girls have accused many people of witchcraft. On page 50, it says the deputy governor promises hanging if they won't confess, John. 
The town's gone wild. I think Abigail brings the other girls into the court, and where she walks, the crowd will part like the Sea of Israel. At this point, 14 people have been arrested, and they either have the option to confess to being witches or be executed. So everyone Abigail and the other girls have accused are in jail. Proctor and Elizabeth talk about Abigail, what they know about her. Elizabeth tells Proctor that he needs to testify that Abigail is lying, that she's a fraud. He obviously says he can't and he won't because he doesn't want people knowing that they were alone in a room together. Because when they were alone in the room together, Abigail told him that there was no witchcraft involved in the dancing in the forest. Anyway, he's like, no, because if people know we were alone in a room together, they'll ask questions and then everyone will know that I had an affair with her. Elizabeth is obviously angry and hurt and Proctor feels judged. She tells him that he is soft towards Abigail, but he won't confess because he doesn't want to hurt her. Mary Warren comes back from court to the Proctor's house and she gives Elizabeth a doll that she sewed for her in court. She gives them the news from the day that 39 people are now accused. She says Goody Osborne will not confess and she is set to be hanged, but Goody Good confessed. So she is saved, but she will be in jail for a while. They're shocked, obviously, that Goody Good would confess. And to what did she confess? Mary says she confessed to writing her name in the devil's book and says she nearly choked us all to death in court today with her spirit. They obviously don't believe it, but she says that she also confessed against Goody Osborne because she believes she cursed her under her breath at one point in time. Goody Osborne says that she was reciting the commandments and not charming her under her breath, but when the court asked her to recite the commandments right then, she couldn't even recite one of them. And so they believed that she was lying. Mary believes that she and the other girls are doing God's work, finding the witches and getting them killed. Anyway, they're mad at Mary for leaving, for going to court. But she's like, hold on. It was a good thing I was there because Elizabeth was accused and I defended her. Mary won't tell them who accused Elizabeth, but they obviously know that it was Abigail and Elizabeth knows it must be her trying to get rid of Elizabeth so that she can be with John Proctor. And Elizabeth tells him, she's like, John, you have to go to Abigail, ask her to stop. She tells him that there's a promise made in any bed, and she believes that Abigail is soft towards John Proctor and will do what he asks. Right then, Reverend Hale comes to the Proctor's house. He's going around to everyone who has been accused and talking to them. He's obviously shocked with everything that happened that day and how many people were accused, and he voices his doubts. He says on 60, I am a stranger here, and in my ignorance I find it hard to draw a clear opinion of them that have come accused before the court. He says he has just come from Rebecca Nurse's house, and they are shocked to find out that such a godly woman has been accused. Reverend Hale tells them, he says on 61, this is a strange time. No man may longer doubt the powers of the dark are gathered in monstrous attack upon this village. There is too much evidence now to deny it. Proctor obviously disagrees with him, and he says he doesn't see any proof of witchcraft in this town. Hale asks about their church attendance, I think trying to get a sense for their like moral character. It, like asks basically why you haven't attended church in a while. 
and why your youngest son hasn't been baptized. And Proctor tells him that he doesn't believe Reverend Paris to be a good man. He says on 62, I see no light of God in that man. Reverend Hale asks Proctor to recite the Ten Commandments, which he does, but he forgets, ironically, the commandment about adultery. So Elizabeth makes Proctor tell Hale what Abigail said to him, that what they did in the forest had nothing to do with witchcraft. Hale says some of the accused have already confessed, so he doesn't understand how that could be. Proctor points out that they will be hanged unless they confess, so duh, they're confessing, because I would probably confess to it too if that meant that I could survive. And Hale is suspicious of this too, but he doesn't say so. He's just, in his head, he has his doubts. But this is his calling in life, so he's afraid to have doubts about it yet. So, just then... More people come to the house. It's Giles Corey and Francis Nurse. They say that their wives have just been arrested. Rebecca is charged with using witchcraft to kill Mrs. Putnam's seven babies. And Martha Corey is accused because a man (laughs) bought a pig from her that died not long after. And when she refused to reimburse him, he was mad because she told him that maybe he just didn't know how to take care of a pig. And then every pig he bought after that died. So obviously she bewitched them. Proctor is absolutely shocked. He asks how a woman as good as Rebecca Nurse could be accused of murdering children. And Hale painfully uses a line he used once before. He says on 68, remember, until an hour before the devil fell, God thought him beautiful in heaven. The next people to come to the house are Ezekiel Cheever, who is a clerk of the court, and the town marshal, whose name is Herrick. They have come to arrest Elizabeth, which surprises Hale because he didn't know that she had been officially accused of anything. Giles Corey tells Cheever that he'll burn in hell for what he's doing. And Cheever's like, look, I'm just doing what I'm told. The marshal turns to Elizabeth and asks if she has any dolls in the house. And she says, no, she doesn't keep any dolls. They call them poppets, by the way. But they see a doll on the fire mantle place, which is the doll that Mary has just given her. And they pick it up and she's like, oh, that's, Mary gave that to me today. She made it for me in court. And they examine it and they find that it has a needle sticking in its stomach. It turns out Abigail has accused Elizabeth of witchcraft using dolls to hurt people. The story goes she freaked out at dinner that night with Paris, and when he went to her, he found a needle in Abigail's stomach. Elizabeth makes Mary tell them that she made the doll in court and put the needle in it herself. So Abigail was sitting next to her, saw her make the doll, saw her put the needle in the stomach, and uses this opportunity to accuse Elizabeth. Mary tells them this. John Proctor takes the warrant from the marshal and rips it up, which is very bad for him in the future. And they say that they still have to arrest Elizabeth. And Hale tries to calmly talk to Proctor. He's like, listen, she'll be proven innocent when she gets to trial. Like, don't worry about it. And Proctor is obviously angry. He's like, if she's innocent, why don't you ever wonder if Paris is innocent or Abigail is the accuser always holy now. So he makes a very good point. Innocent until proven guilty is obviously not a thing in Puritan society. So he's like, why do you always just believe the accuser with no proof? But they take Elizabeth away and arrest her. 
At this point, Hale is obviously faltering in his belief that there is witchcraft going on. He feels guilt and uncertainty, and Proctor calls him a coward, and then everyone leaves his house. He tells Mary that she must go to the court with him tomorrow and confess, and Mary's like, I can't. Abigail will kill me if I confess to making the doll. And she says, and Abigail will tell everyone about your affair with her if you try to confess. She says that she will, Abigail will ruin you. And Proctor is shocked that Mary knows about the affair, but he still demands that they go and confess. But she cries over and over again that she can't. Okay, in the book, there is an act to scene to that was taken out of the book and also most of the versions of the play. But I'm going to talk about it briefly because it's an interesting scene and maybe your teacher is making you read it. So just remember this isn't in the official play anymore. It's in the woods at night. Abigail and John Proctor meet. Elizabeth Proctor has been in jail for 36 days now. Proctor is getting desperate and so he calls Abigail to meet with him. They make random small talk about how Abigail's famous in town and she shows Proctor all of her wounds that she has supposedly received from the spirits of all the town witches who are continuously tormenting her. She tells Proctor that he is the only good person left in town, but he becomes cold and he tells her, he's like, my wife goes to trial in the morning and Abigail is becomes angry. John tells her that he came to see her tonight to warn her that tomorrow he will go to the courts and confess to their affair and soil her good name in order to save his wife and all the other people she's accused, unless she confesses to lying on her own. And the narrator describes Abigail as a child standing there who is unutterably frustrated, denied her wish. Abigail thought that John Proctor was coming to her to confess his love for her or something. She obviously wants to be his wife. That's why she's trying to get Elizabeth out of the way. And Proctor tells her, that he will prove her to be a fraud. And he says, I will make you famous for the whore you are. And she says, he, she says, there's no way he'll do that. She says, I know you, John. You were in this moment singing secret hallelujahs that your wife will hang. And Proctor calls her a murderous B-I-T-C-H. And Abigail gives a speech as she walks away <laughs> saying that he's a hypocrite. And she says that she will save him from himself. So again, that scene is not in the book. It's not in the play anymore, but originally it was. And I think it's interesting. Okay, act three. So court is in session. Martha Corey is on trial for reading fortunes because remember her husband was concerned about what she was reading at night and she wouldn't show him what it was. So of course they think she's reading fortunes. She denies it, says she's not a witch, but Deputy Governor Danforth is the judge. So Danforth and Hawthorne are the two judges that are in this play, but Deputy Governor Danforth is kind of the main judge. So the narrator describes him as a grave man in his 60s, and he is widely considered the true villain of the story because he eagerly convicts anyone accused without literally any evidence except for someone's testimony. Giles Corey accuses Putnam, Thomas Putnam, of accusing people because he wants their land, which we talked about before. The Putnams 
accused a lot of people, signed a lot of testimonies, and mostly because whoever was being accused had the land that they wanted or cows that they wanted or whatever. They were in a fight with them or hated them for some reason. So a group of men meet in a side room of the court. Judge Hawthorne, Governor Danforth, Reverend Hale, Reverend Paris, Giles Corey, and Francis Nurse. All of these men meet in a room together. Giles, Corey, and Francis Nurse tell Governor Danforth that the girls are frauds, that they're deceiving everyone. Danforth gets angry that they're accusing him of not being able to recognize the truth, obviously, because he's prideful. Francis Nurse says on 81, he says, I never thought to say it to such a weighty judge, but you are deceived. So then John Proctor and Mary Warren come in. Paris warns Danforth not to trust Proctor. He says that this man is mischief because Paris really hates Proctor. Proctor tells him that Mary Warren signed a deposition saying she and the other girls have been lying this whole time and never saw any spirits. Mary testifies that the girls were lying, only pretending that people were using witchcraft on them. And Paris starts to panic. He's basically panicked this entire act. Danforth turns to John Proctor for confirmation. He confirms. He asks if Proctor is undermining the court. Proctor says he just wants to free his wife. Cheever is there. He's the guy who arrested Elizabeth and pretty much everyone else. And he tells the governor that Proctor tore up the warrant when they were trying to arrest Elizabeth, which does not bode well for Proctor. And so Danforth starts questioning Proctor's faithfulness, his religious beliefs, and Paris tells him that Proctor attends church only once a month. And Cheever says, you know, he plows on Sunday, which is apparently a very serious sin. Proctor tells Danforth, he's like, I don't like Reverend Paris, but I love God and I plow on Sunday to feed my family. Giles Corey points out that many farmers plow on Sunday, not just John Proctor. And Reverend Hale is like, you can't honestly judge a man based on this. But Danforth is like, yes, I can. So Proctor finds out that Elizabeth claims to be pregnant. And so they won't hang her at least until after she delivers the baby because they are merciful. That was sarcasm. The Marshal Herrick speaks for Proctor saying he knows him to be a good man. And Proctor presents a document he had signed by almost 100 farmers providing evidence that Elizabeth Proctor, Martha Corey, and Rebecca Nurse are good women of good character, and there's no way they can be involved in witchcraft. Paris, again, panicked, says that this document is an attack on the court. Reverend Hale asks why every defense for these accused people is considered an attack on the court, which is a valid question. Paris says all innocent and Christian people are happy for the court in Salem. Danforth orders the marshal to bring all 91 people who signed the bill in for questioning well, he actually tells them to arrest all 91 people, which everyone freaks out about. And then Thomas Putnam shows up and he's been asked to answer the allegations that he is using his daughter to accuse people of witchcraft in order to get their land because he's one of the wealthiest people in Salem and has the means and money to buy these people's land once they're executed. In this instance, they're specifically talking about George Jacob's land. Giles Corey is the one who accused him of this, but he can't say who he got the information from because he wants to protect this person. The governor is like, tell me who it is. 
or I'm going to arrest you. And he won't tell him who it is. So they arrest Giles Corey for contempt of the court. Hale tries to talk to Danforth calmly, telling him that everyone in the country is in fear and he shouldn't feed into it. And Danforth says on 91, no uncorrupted man may fear this court. So next up, Governor Danforth reads the deposition signed by Mary. Before he can say anything, Hale begs him to stop and let Proctor come back with a proper lawyer to handle this. Danforth refuses, and on 93 he says, Witchcraft is an invisible crime, is it not? Therefore, who may possibly be witness to it? The witch and the victim. Now we cannot hope the witch will accuse herself. Therefore, we must rely upon her victims. Which is just so crazy. Literally zero evidence of any witchcraft happening and only personal testimony and that's what they're executing people with. Paris tries to interject and Danforth stops him. He clearly doesn't like Paris, which is so fun because Paris sucks. So Danforth begins questioning Mary Warren. She affirms that she lied in the court and is good with God now and she's telling the truth. Danforth says that she is either lying now or lied in the court, and either way, she will go to jail for perjury. But she still affirms that she was lying in court, and she's now telling the truth. Danforth brings in the other girls, Abigail and four others, and Abigail is the leader, as always, and she denies everything Mary said about them lying, but Mary sticks to her confession. They ask Mary to pretend to faint for them, like she claimed she did in court, because she said it was all pretense, it was all pretend, we fainted in court and it was pretend. So they ask her to faint. She get, like is scared under pressure and she says she can't faint. They press her more and more and she says she only thought she saw spirits, but she didn't and that it was all a show. So obviously her testimony is falling apart because she can't faint on the spot. So Danforth begins questioning Abigail and she can tell that he's leaning towards Mary's testimony And so she takes this moment to start shivering. The other girls follow suit because they just do everything that she does. And Abigail says that Mary has bewitched them with a cold wind. And she yells up at the sky. She says, oh, Heavenly Father, take away this shadow. And Proctor can't take another second of it. So he leaps at Abigail and calls her a whore. And he tells the room, that he has known her in the biblical term, that they had an affair. And he admits he thought of her softly, but he knows that she is now seeking revenge. He tells the governor that his wife Elizabeth fired Abigail when she found out about their affair, and now Abigail wants revenge so that she can marry Proctor. Danforth asks Abigail, and she won't answer. Danforth decides to call Elizabeth into the room to confirm the story, and she's been in jail for a while now. He makes Abigail and Proctor turn their backs and Elizabeth, thinking that she is protecting Proctor, lies and she says that she only thought Proctor fancied Abigail and fired her, but he didn't actually have an affair with her. So they take her away and as she's walking out of the room, Proctor cries to her that he confessed, but it's too late. And Proctor pleads with Danforth. He's like, she was just protecting me. She thought she was protecting me. And Hale turns to Danforth, also asking him to reconsider. He begs him to stop, says he can sense a personal vengeance, and he says that he's always felt that Abigail was a liar. Abigail interrupts this exchange by starting to scream at the ceiling. She says there's a bird in the rafters, that Mary's spirit is the bird, that she is bewitching them again, 
and all the girls join in and Mary cries saying that they're lying, but they keep screaming. And every time Mary speaks, they copy her in perfect unison and everyone is freaking out. Hale turns to Danforth astonished and he's like, you cannot believe them. Like you're joking that you actually believe that this is real. Mary becomes hysterical and joins them in screaming. And when Proctor tries to comfort her, she runs from him, calling him a devil's man. And then she uses this opportunity to save herself. She says that Proctor comes to her at night and makes her sign the devil's book. She says that he threatened to kill her if his wife hangs. Hale exclaims that she's gone wild. Mary runs to Abigail, hugging her, and tells her that she'll never desert her again. Danforth orders that Proctor is arrested. Hale protests. He's ignored. And Proctor says that God is dead. And Hale denounces everything. He says this entire trial is wrong. He says, I denounce these proceedings. I quit this court. And that's the end of Act 3. Act 4. Time has passed. I'm not sure exactly how much because I I don't know what season it was before, but now it's autumn. So time has passed. The Marshal Herrick is in the prison and he's talking to Sarah Good and Tituba, who were some of the first people who were actually the first people to be arrested. It's not yet morning, but this morning is the morning that they're supposed to hang along with five other prisoners, including John Proctor. The two women are talking about how the devil promised to come get them and take them away to Barbados, where Tituba's from. She says that the devil's soul freezes in Massachusetts. So judges Danforth and Hawthorne go to the jail in Salem to see Reverend Paris. Paris has been there meeting with the prisoners, and he and Reverend Hale are trying to convince them to confess so that they don't hang that morning. Danforth is really angry that Hale was allowed into the prison because he left after he denounced everything, but he's come back to try and save these last seven people. Paris tells Judge Danforth that his niece Abigail and Mercy Lewis have disappeared and taken all his money with them, and he thinks they got on a boat and went somewhere. Paris talks to Danforth about Andover. Andover is a neighboring town that has thrown out the courts and say that they'll have no part in witchcraft. They're rioting. Basically, they just don't believe that all these people are witches. And he's concerned that Salem will follow suit, especially because the people that they're hanging today are like highly regarded in the community or have been up to this point, including Proctor and Rebecca Nurse. So they carry great weight in this town. He's afraid that if Rebecca Nurse stands on the gallows, she'll wake a vengeance on you, he says on 118. So Paris proposes that they postpone the executions, which Danforth immediately refuses. Paris fears that, he says on 118, many honest people will weep for them and our good purpose is lost in their tears. And he tells Danforth that when he left his house today, a dagger fell from his roof and almost landed on his head. And he says, there's danger for me. So Reverend Hale comes into the room. He asks also, he asks for more time to convince the prisoners to confess and save their lives. He begs Danforth to reconsider and pardon them all because he can't get them to confess. But Danforth obviously refuses to show any weakness He says that any postponement or pardon will make them seem weak and make the townspeople doubt the guilt of the people who've been accused. On 121, Danforth says, 12 are already executed. 
The names of these seven are given out, and the village expects to see them die this morning. Postponement now speaks of floundering on my part. Reprieve or pardon must cast doubt upon the guilt of them that died till now. If retaliation is your fear, know this, I should hang 10,000 that dared to rise against the law. So he just freaking sucks, and he tells them that they're bound by heaven to follow through with the executions. Paris and Hale think that if one prisoner confesses, that it will appease the town. Also, Hale hopes to add at least one less murder to his name because he feels responsible for all of it. So their last hope is John Proctor. Proctor has been kept in a dungeon this whole time and has been tortured. The marshal says that if you saw him, you wouldn't know he was alive. Hale hasn't spoken to him yet, and they hope that using his pregnant wife, Elizabeth, will help persuade him to confess and save his life. So Hale tries again, telling Danforth that if he postpone a week in order to try and get confessions, that shows mercy, not weakness. But Danforth says no again. And Hale says on 120, if you think God wills you to raise rebellion, Mr. Danforth, you are mistaken. And Danforth asks why Hale has returned in a way that suggests that he may have ulterior motives. And (laughs) Hale sarcastically says, I come to do the devil's work. I come to counsel Christians that they should disguise themselves. And his sarcasm is not understood. So he says seriously, there is blood on my head. Can you not see the blood on my head? Before Danforth can respond to this, Elizabeth Proctor walks into the room. She's chained up and about three months pregnant. Hale speaks to her. He says that he's trying to save her husband. On 122, he says, if he is taken, I count myself his murderer. And Hale says that the prisoners are innocent and he knows it, which Danforth is shocked to hear. Hale begs Elizabeth to speak with Proctor and convince him to confess and not die. So Elizabeth says that she will talk to him, but she can't make any promises. So they let John and Elizabeth alone in a room together. Because Proctor has been in a dungeon this whole time, he doesn't know anything that's going on. So Elizabeth tells him that Rebecca's son has been taking care of their children. She tells him that almost 100 people have confessed to witchcraft to save their lives. And he asks if Rebecca has confessed, and she has not. Elizabeth says that nothing will persuade her to now. And she tells him about Giles Corey. So Giles refused to speak. So in order to get a guilty or not guilty out of him, they pressed him to death, which I told you in the beginning, they just added more and more rocks onto his chest until he died. But he still didn't speak. He didn't plead guilty or not guilty. And in doing so, they could not hang him, but they also couldn't sell his property when he died. So he did it in order for his sons to inherit his farm instead of it being sold. As they added more and more stones, his last words were more weight. He was 83 years old. And remember, this is true. This actually happened to a man named Giles Corey, who was 83. And Elizabeth says that he was a fearsome man. So Proctor and Elizabeth talk about whether or not he should confess. Proctor says he's been thinking that he should confess to save his life. And Elizabeth won't tell him one way or another. She just tells him that she wants him alive. But Proctor doesn't want to give the prosecutors the satisfaction of confessing his guilt. He thinks that would make it easy for them to justify what they've done to these people. He asks Elizabeth for forgiveness for what he did to her. And she tells him that she is not one to judge him. 
and that she was a cold wife and that's the reason that he cheated, which obviously wasn't her fault. But Elizabeth tells him that she never knew such goodness in the world as him. And in the end, he decides to confess. He says, I will have my life. So the others come back into the room. They're happy to hear that John is ready to confess. He confesses out loud. But when they try to get him to sign a paper sealing his guilt, he refuses. They say he has to sign it for it will be hung on the church door for all to see. Rebecca is brought in strategically to see Proctor confess in hopes that she will confess after seeing him. And Proctor is ashamed when he sees her. So as a part of his confession, Danforth wants him to say that he saw Rebecca and the other people who were accused deal with the devil, but he refuses. He says on 132, I have three children. How may I teach them to walk like men in the world if I sold my friends? Danforth becomes more and more angry with him and Proctor finally signs it, but he takes the sheet of paper and says he will not allow them to nail it to the church door. He's like, the town doesn't need to see my name. God sees my name and that's enough. He says the only thing he has left in this world is his name and he won't let them take it away from him. On 133, he says, it is my name. I cannot have another in life. I lie and sign myself to lies. I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Give me my name. And he tears up the confession. Hale and Paris freak out because they know that he'll hang for this. But Proctor says he can and he will. And he sees goodness in himself finally. Elizabeth runs to him crying. And Proctor tells her not to cry, not to show these people her sadness. He says on 133, show honor now, show a stony heart and sink them with it. And Rebecca tells them not to fear. Another judgment awaits them all. Danforth has the marshal take Proctor and the other six prisoners away. It's morning now and they are to be hanged at dawn. Danforth says that anyone who weeps for them weeps for corruption. And as they walk out, Hale and Paris cry after them, begging them to confess And in one last effort, they try to get Elizabeth to beg Proctor to confess, but she won't. She says on 134, he has his goodness now. God forbid I take it from him. And that's the end of act four. And now there is an epilogue, which is called Echoes Down the Corridor. It's very short. It basically just tells us that after the trials, Paris is voted out of office very soon. And he leaves town and is never seen again. There's rumors that Abigail is a prostitute in Boston. Elizabeth remarries four years later. And 20 years after the trials, the government offers compensation to the victims who are still alive and to the families of those who were killed. But not everyone, still not everyone believes that the trials were wrong. In the year 1712, the excommunications of those who were condemned are retracted. And on 135, it says, to all intents and purposes, the power of theocracy in Massachusetts was broken. And this is true. The Salem Witch Trials is what broke the whole government led by religion thing. So that ended that. All right. So I'm going to go over themes. The first theme I told you guys to look out for was intolerance, which I'm sure the whole, like this entire play is about intolerance. So again, Puritan society was extremely severe. They believed in punishing people for their sins and seeking out people's sins. They operated under a theocracy, meaning that the church ran the state. So there's no separation of church and state like we have now. 
So that means when someone doesn't come to church every week, they're questioned, are they dealing with the devil? And any sort of deviation from their normal life and religion is not only unlawful, but they are immediately associated with satanic activity. There is no (laughs) in-between. So we see this obviously with a lot of characters, but John Proctor especially, in his case, he tried to end the hysteria and prove that the girls were lying. And because he was against the court in this, he was considered to be dealing with the devil. And that was why he was arrested. And Puritans literally have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to religion. Oh, and also Giles Corey was executed for trying to defend his wife who was arrested for reading books. So pretty crazy time. Like literally someone breathes wrong in Puritan society and they're considered to be a witch. You know, a woman exists and she's considered a witch. So that's that theme. The next one is judgment. So Danforth and Hale are sort of the same in the beginning, both seeking out sinners and bringing harsh judgment upon them. But as the story goes on, Hale begins to see the problem in this and sees that these people, though they may not attend church regularly, or if they, you know, read books that the church frowns upon, or they dance in the woods, this doesn't mean that they are participating in witchcraft. He learns that judging people is not his place, and he blames himself for all the deaths in Salem. But Danforth obviously doesn't change. He believes that there is no going back on his word or his initial judgment. And he believes that if he shows weakness, if he changes his mind at all, that means he's weak, even if he knows he's wrong. And the townspeople obviously spend all their time judging other people. They live to seek out sin and tattle on their neighbors. It's what they've been taught from birth. And the girls in the play do it right. They first accuse Tituba because she is a black woman and they know townspeople won't question it. Then they go for poor members of the town like Goody Good and Goody Osborne because they are low on the social status. And they accuse mostly women because men were considered more important than women, rich more important than poor. So the girls gradually build up to accusing people of good, high moral standing And so when the trials are coming to an end and the last executions are people of high standing and moral character, that's when the townspeople start to question the court and the law. And they start seeing that there's something wrong here if these good people are being executed for supposed witchcraft. And that's why they fear that the townspeople will riot. Okay, last theme is hysteria. Obviously, the Salem witch trials caused mass hysteria in Salem and the neighboring towns. One person is accused and it causes a ripple effect. So everyone in town is on the lookout for odd behavior. They use this as an opportunity to accuse people that they are in fights with over land or animals or whatever. Anyway, people use the hysteria to their benefit by accusing people who are causing trouble in their lives or people who they just don't like. So anyway, that's all I'm going to talk about as far as themes, but crazy book. It's just crazy that this was real. I'm fascinated by the Salem witch trials because I can't believe that that many people believed that 200 people accused of witchcraft were actually involved in witchcraft. It's so crazy. Anyway, that's the end. So go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify so that you know when new episodes come out.